And, but I'm not going to read from there yet. Verse 11 of Revelation chapter 19, we're in the middle of the chapter. I want to read to you from Psalm 2. So if you want to keep your hand there and turn over to Psalm 2, you can. But Psalm 2 is prophetic and it fits perfectly in, in, in relationship to what we're reading here in um, Revelation chapter 19. So, who, by the way, here, who, who in the last, okay, I'm not judging you, I'm not trying to like pull shame on you, but who in the last like five years, I mean, there's been so many opportunities to watch one of Hollywood's apocalyptic end times kind of movies, you know, with like an asteroid coming out of this, this or the zombie attack. I mean, they're everywhere. It's, you almost did not watch one of those kinds of movies about, about the end of the world you have to be living in a cave. And, and maybe you're just more holy than me, and, and God bless you, but I kind of like those kinds of movies. And um, <laughs> no joke. <laughs> anyway, never mind. I don't have enough time. Don't, I'll just say this. Don't go watch one of those movies when you're the only two people, when you and your wife are the only ones in the whole movie theater. That's a little weird. <laughs> so, but the reason why I mention that is because there is... If you speak to the older generation that, that's not our generation, and some of you maybe are in a generation in the, in the, in the 70s in that area, I don't know if you're 70 years older, but I spoke to my grandma who's 90 and stuff, and you know she talks to me, and I, I ask her questions about her generation, and what you've seen in this time that we live in, in the last 30 years, and even more so in the last 10 years, is there's this infatuation with the end of the world that has not been there and that's because the Bible tells us that God has written eternity on the hearts of men. And what that means is God, God we know deep down that we are eternal creatures. We're going to live forever. But we know that in, in, in light of God having written eternity in our heart, that this life, this temporal life, this world that we've been given, that it's passing away. Everybody knows that inside. God's written it on our hearts, in our DNA, if you will. And men do all kinds of things to deny those. But if you just look at the secular world and their infatuation with the end of the world, you know that it's true. You know that it's true. It's not, it doesn't just make for good theater or for good cinematography. It, 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 it connects with people at a heart level because people know that this world is passing away. And in Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2, that's what it kind of talks about as it leads into our study into Revelation chapter 19. In Psalm 2, the psalmist writes, and he says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And I love that the psalmist addresses this. He says, It's a vain thing, but yet they plan this. They, 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 they make, they make a, 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 a way to try to do this, but it's not possible. And it goes, He... Speaking of God, the psalmist goes on, he who sits in heavens shall laugh. In other words, he sees this and God's just like, foolish people. It says, the Lord shall hold them in mockery. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And then a quote from God, he says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. Well, Zion's in Jerusalem. That's what John Zion is Jerusalem. It says, God says, he says in relationship to this, he says, I'm setting, I'm setting my king in Jerusalem, on my holy hill. 
I will declare thy decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the end of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, okay, so we've heard this. We want to make sure that we're not on this side of the coin, if you, if, if you will. And the psalmist's response is, he says, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. You see, the psalmist is pointing out that ultimately there's only two choices you can make. You can align yourself with those who are going, we're going to cast away God from us, and we're going to rise up against him. Remember, as we studied through this, that really took place early on to begin with in a world-organized way with Nimrod back in Babylon. With the Tower of Babel. And it's continued on since then, really, it really began in Adam and back with Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve said, no, we think there's a better way, God. We know that you've said this, but we are going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this forbidden fruit. And they were deceived, and they were tempted. But the truth is, they ultimately said, no, we don't want your will, your ways, we want ours. So we either have a choice to align ourselves in that camp, where we go, we want things our way, and we're going to come against you, God, because it's about what we want, our will, not yours. Or we can be like the psalmist says, we can be like these who are blessed who put our trust in him, who kiss the son. And, and that's speaking of this affection that comes from a relationship. It's not this subservient thing where you're bowing down and kissing the hand of the king, although that's a good place to begin. But it's where you see yourself as Jesus Christ that we've been talking about as the bride and as the bridegroom and we as the bride where God calls us into this love relationship through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, one of the questions that mankind has been asking for centuries, and, 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 and this question may seem a little redundant in light of already, what I've already spoken of, but, but all for many centuries, and, and even though there hasn't been this great infatuation with the end of the world as is of late, but for centuries and centuries and centuries, man has been asking the question, how will it all end? By the way, go Google search that. In fact, historians, to begin with, historians in every age, what they've done is they've studied the past, hoping to find a clue to understand and explain the future. Furthermore, scientists have even broken down the universe to now a subatomic level in order to predict and prevent the possible answers to predict and to prevent, as if man kind of thinks that we somehow prevent it, because they know it's coming to end. They know eventually something's going to happen. But they, they, they study the earth, they study the, 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 the universe, even now to the subatomic level, because they, they want to predict and prevent all the possible answers of how will it end. In addition to this, we know that astronomers have even looked into the heaven and gazed into distant universes and, and, and seen other galaxies, other planets, and other suns that have died and destroyed and been 
been annihilated, and they do so in the hopes of, 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 of predicting and again preventing our own universe's doom. Demise. And every kind of philosopher, both ancient and modern day, has offered their own contemplations, their own wisdoms, in attempt of infiltrating the meaning of things and predicting the end of it all. But even though there have been all these great minds, scientists, astronomers, philosophers, even though there's been all these great minds through the ages working together to answer this question, none of them has been able to give us a definitive answer or solution to what is perceived to be inevitable. Nevertheless, it seems as if each new year comes and brings a rise to all kinds of new predictions on how it will all end. And with each new prediction, the possible ways of how it's going to end becomes more elaborate and even more gruesome. So it's no surprise that as the end is rapidly and obviously drawing near, many people have become concerned and even infatuated with this question of how will it all end. In fact, there's a recent Discover Magazine article which addressed this question, and it compiled a list of the top 20 probable ways that the world wins. The article goes on to say, he says, he says, we've had a good run of it. In the last 500,000 years, Homo sapiens have roamed the earth, we've built cities, created complex languages, and sent robotic scouts to other planets. It's difficult to imagine it all coming to an end, yet 99% of all species that ever lived have gone extinct. And human activity is severely disrupting almost all life on the planet, which surely does not help matters. The current rate of extinction is by some estimates 10,000 times the average found in the fossil record. At present, we may not worry about snail darters or red squirrels in abstract terms, but the next statistic could be us on the list. Then the article goes on to list these top 20 ways that the world could end. Some of these are very, um, I mean, some of these things are, are biblical, right? Asteroid impact, gamma ray burst, collapse of the Earth's vacuum, rogue black holes, giant solar flares, the reversal of the Earth's magnetic field causing the North and the South Pole to flip, and scientists tell us that such a reversal was only 780,000 years ago. And we're overdue. Volcanic activity. And, and a, a flood of basalt, in other words, called volcanism, where one supervolcano erupts and all the other volcanoes on the Earth that are dormant join in. Global epidemics are epidemics. The thought there is if the Earth doesn't do us in, then our fellow organisms might up, be up to the task. And in the face of drug-resistant viruses and bacteria, this threat is ever increasing. Human-triggered disasters such as Ecosystem collapse, biotech disasters, particle accelerator mishaps, nanotechnology disasters, environmental toxins, willful self-destruction such as global, global wars and nuclear annihilation, robots and AI or artificial life taking over. How about mass insanity? I think we're already there. <laughs> 
A greater force is directed against us, such as an alien invasion. Someone wakes up and realizes it's a college roommate. It's on the list. And last but not least, number 20, divine interventions. Now, with all this uncertainty, it's good to know that as believers in Jesus Christ, that we don't have to be uncertain about how it's all going to end. Do you see the difference? Do you hear that? The world's uncertain. We don't have to be uncertain. We know how it's going to end. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, it really reminds us of this saying. It says, we have something more sure. The confirmed prophetic word of God, to which you do well to pay attention to as a light shining in this dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's given us the answers. And it's the prophetic word of God that shines for us today as a light in the midst of all this darkness, in the midst of all this confusion that the world is enveloped in and infatuated with concerning the end. Because the prophetic word of God tells us how it's going to end. And we can depend upon what God's word tells us. We can trust in God's word. And in the book of Revelation, we're, can, we're, we're clearly told about how it will end. And in the remaining chapters of this book, there are six keys. If you're taking notes, I want to give you six keys in the timeline events for us to take note of as God wraps up all of human history as we currently know it now. The first is found at the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 19, in verses 1 through 10 that we studied through last week. And in these first verses, uh, we see how all of heaven will rejoice and praise the Lord, singing hallelujah just prior to Jesus' second coming. So there's going to be something taking place in heaven as an acknowledgement and a recognition that the end has come and the Messiah is about to return to the earth. Then in chapter 20, we see the saints, the wife of the Lamb, ruling and reigning with Jesus for a thousand years. So the heaven rejoices. The Lamb of God comes to the earth, which we're going to study and read about more in detail today. And then in chapter 20, we're told that at that time, the saints, as the Lord rules, the wife of the Lamb is going to be ruling and reigning at Jesus' side for a thousand years. And after this thousand-year reign, also in chapter 20, we read of how Satan, who will have been bound up for these thousand years, will be released, and he will rise up to one last rebellion against God and against the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But Satan, in his rebellion, will be easily crushed. And after Satan's defeat, all of mankind will then, next in the timeline, all of mankind who has ever lived, as we're told that the seas and the oceans and the earth will give up its dead, that all will be brought before the throne of God for a final judgment. And it says to us that anyone whose name is not written in the book of life, that then they will be cast into a lake of fire. And then lastly, in Revelation chapter 21, we're told that at that time, God will make all things new. A new heaven and a new earth. And this is what we're told about in Psalms 2. As we read here 
that after all these things, or before all these things, excuse me, are made new, before all these things come to pass that I've just listed for you, is that Jesus must return to the earth. And that's what we read about now, starting um, in verse 11 of chapter 19, where it says, John, now I saw, says, I, heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with robes, with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Father, as we study through these verses and the remaining verses in this chapter, I pray, God, that it would be you speaking to us, that I would just be your vessel, humbly in your hands, Lord, your mouthpiece as you penetrate into our lives, speaking to our hearts, leading us and guiding us, convicting us of sin, Lord. We know that it's your word that is powerful, that it's the Holy Spirit that breathes life. And so, Lord, I pray you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you quickly look back with me to verse 11, we see the very first thing that the world is going to see at this second coming, at the return of Jesus Christ, is heaven opening up. And Jesus, with his army, riding to the earth as he comes and says to make war. This literally means, and I believe this to be the literal, it literally means, because we're, we're not told otherwise, by the way, and, and, and it means that the physical sky which we see, when we look up, it will open to expose a spiritual dimension, a spiritual realm that is currently hidden from our physical sight. In order to allow all of the people that are on the earth at this time to gaze up to heaven and see. Now, I don't know exactly what this will look like, but the same event is also described in detail for us back in Revelation chapter 14. Or excuse me, chapter 6, verses 14 through 7, where it says this. It says, Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, and every slave and every free man, they hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And it's really, truly an amazing thing to think of that the sky which is above, that contains all the moons and all of the planets and all the stars of every single universe, that is going to roll back like a scroll being opened up to reveal the spiritual realm. But even more amazing than this, more wonderful than this, is the thought that all the men of the earth at this time, who, by the way, will have gathered together as one force to surround Israel at this time in order to make war against God's people, they will look up at this time, at this place, and see Jesus riding from heaven, coming to Jerusalem in order to make war against them. 
according to Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the first time that Jesus came to the earth, that his mission was to seek and save the lost. And in Matthew chapter 21, it tells us that during this time when Jesus was here seeking and saving the lost, that he humbly rode into Jerusalem as the king. And let the people declare him to be the king of Israel. And he did so riding on the, on the pole or the pole of a donkey. But on that same day, we're told that Jesus' eyes were filled with tears. That Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And we know that he wept because he knew that shortly after his triumphal entry, that he, being the Lamb of God, would be rejected, and that he would be mocked, and that he would be crowned with a crown of thorns. He would be nailed to a cross. But it's different here. The second time, in verses 11 through 16, we see that when Jesus is returning to the earth for the second time, it's with a much different mission. Understand that. That's what we're being shown here. And when Jesus comes the second time, we see that it's to make war. To make war against those who have rejected him. And to judge them, it says, in righteousness and in accordance to their works. In fact, this whole judging in righteousness is even like I was sharing with somebody this week. It's even, it's even something that an unbelieving world is asking for every time they ask this question. If God is so good, then why does he allow for bad things to happen? What are they calling upon? They're saying, why is God unjust? And they ask this question because they want justice for the wrong things that they've seen being done, or, 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 or more often than not, they want justice for the wrong things that are done against them. Yet if the truth is to be told, they don't want this same righteous judgment that they're calling for to be brought upon them. None of us do. And we know that God, who is long-suffering, He is at this very moment, the Bible tells us, that He is holding back His righteous judgment for an upcoming period of time. This time that we're reading about here. This day when Jesus comes back, when the scroll, when the skies are rolled back with the scroll, with the scroll and Jesus comes to rule and reign and judge upon the earth. This time has been allotted, this time of, 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 of grace, as the Bible defines it, has been allotted by God to give people this chance, a chance, you and I a chance, and others whom we know and we love, a chance to repent a chance to receive his forgiveness and to be saved from this coming judgment through faith in Jesus Christ. And because of this, it's often been said that with one hand, God is, is motioning men to come to him. Come to me, come to me, God says. And with the other hand, he's holding back his wrath, his justice. But soon he's going to drop both hands. And in doing so, those who reject Jesus as their Savior, those who refuse to repent, to turn away from their sins, it tells us that they will be judged. And Jesus, who is faithful, Jesus, who is true, will pass judgment on them, it says, for every evil thing they've done, for all of their works. They will be judged according to their works. Consequently, when Jesus returns to judge, we're told here that his eyes, which were once filled with tears, on his first mission, that they will be, according to verse 12, at this time, filled with fire. And Elias, I remind you that when fire is used as a metaphor in the Bible, it's always as a picture of judgment, and it's always associated with purification. 
And remember in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, it tells us that for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, that God allows for the fiery trials of this life to come into our lives in order to refine us, in order to burn away the impure things in our lives that don't glorify God through fiery trials. But when the, when the purifying fires of God, these same purifying fires of God that come upon us, that sanctify us so that we can stand faultless on that day before God, when Jesus Christ presents us to his Father in heaven, those same purifying fires of God, when they're put on those who have not put their faith in Jesus, they in their self-righteousness will not be able to stand. And the Bible tells us they'll be consumed. So when we read here that Jesus' eyes will be like flames of fire, we see that it's a sign of the coming judgment. However, this description of Jesus' eyes being like flames of fire, it also reminds us that when Jesus returns, it's no longer going to be as the gentle lamb. When Jesus returns, rather, it will be as a fierce lion, it says, from the tribe of Judah. And, 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 and we see that he is full of wrath. And remember, we're told back in Revelation chapter 6 that when the armies of the world see Jesus returning at this time, when they look up into heaven and they see Jesus riding in on his horse, that they're going to attempt to hide themselves. But it tells us also that there's going to be no place to hide, no place to run. And it's not because they're running because of the fearful things that they've seen, this magnificent Christ riding in as the lion. You know why they hide? They hide because of the same reason that Adam and Eve hid themselves in the garden after they sinned. Because they knew that they had sinned against God, and they knew that they were guilty, and they knew that they were deserving of punishment. And so do these people at this time. They know. We all know. Now, in verse 12, it also points out that when Jesus returns, he's no longer wearing the crown of thorns. He's wearing, it says, many crowns. And the Greek word used here for crown is the word um, diadem. And it specifically refers to crown or a crown of royalty. And the fact that Jesus is pictured here as wearing many crowns, it reminds us of the fact that he's coming to set up his kingdom here upon this earth. And in doing so, that he will rule and reign over it all. He will be the king of kings. And this is further illustrated in verse 16, where Jesus is wearing this title on his robe and on his side, king of kings and lord of lords. And when our king comes, there will no longer be other kings, not presidents, not presidential candidates, not dictators, nothing. Hurry up, come Lord Jesus. There will no longer be many kings. There will no longer be many kingdoms. For Jesus will be the only king. And it will only be his kingdom here upon the earth. Now in verse 13 it says, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. And we see that in addition to wearing these many crowns here in verse 13, that when Jesus returns it will also be with a robe that's been dipped in blood. It's important to note, just in case you're thinking, this blood is not a carryover from the scourging that Jesus endured prior to being crucified. It's not his blood. Rather, it's the blood from the men of these armies who Jesus will trample under his feet, it tells us, in a place referred to as the Valley of Medjugorje. 
which is likened to the winepress of the wrath of God. We remember when we were studying through Revelation chapter 14, we read about this time of God's final wrath. When it is released, and it says that the fruit of the vine of the earth, the fruit from the vine of the earth, which by the way, remember when we studied that, that is the, the fruit that, that, that is described as being ripe at that time, ready to be harvested, is really a fruit that's overripe, and it speaks of God's merciful, long-suffering nature, where, where, where God's waiting to the very last minute, to the very last second, to the very specific time, so he gives everybody a chance to repent. It's overripe fruit that's being harvested. And in doing so, as God comes, as Jesus comes, and he tramples these armies in this valley, we're told that, that the blood that will flow in this valley will be four and a half feet deep. In light of this, it's easy to understand why there would be blood depicted on the robe that Jesus is wearing. Another prophetic passage of scripture that details this is also found in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, verses 1 through 3. And it says, Who is this who comes from Eden with dyed garments from Basra, the one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Who is he? I, who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like the one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the peoples, no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger, and I have trampled them in my fury, and their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my wounds. Now, I just want to point it out that up to this point, it's kind of led you down a path of assumption. And we've been making this assumption that it is Jesus who is on this white horse. In fact, in verse 12, we're told that the rider of this horse has a name written that no one knew except himself. And just so you know, that's simply an illustration to point out that Jesus, the Son of God, the Lion from the tribe of Judah, that he is inexpressible, that he is indescribable. But here in verse 13, we see that he's also given the title. You see there, the end, what is it? The Word of God. And this title is used several times throughout the scripture, and perhaps the most notable is in John chapter 1, right? And in John chapter 1, verse 1, John writes, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John goes on a little bit later, and he picks back up in verse 14, and, and then he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and full of truth. And in those two passages of John, and then here again in verse 13, the Greek word for word is logos, or logos. And it means this. It means a word that is uttered by a living voice, which embodies a concept or an idea. A word that's been uttered by a living voice which embodies a concept or an idea. And since Jesus is the Logos who was with God, and the Logos who is God and who became flesh to dwell among us, we see by this definition that he, Jesus, fully embodies 
God the Father and Jesus being the Word of God reveals God to us. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter, tells, chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus is this embodiment. He is the expressed image of God. And the fact that Jesus wears this title, the Word of God, at His second coming points to us of this undisputable fact that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, will once again return to the earth and we see Him here in Revelation chapter 19. Now in verse 14, it says, at that time, the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And if we consider this in relationship to what we read back in verses 7 and 8 of this chapter that we talked about last week, which, which specifically describes the bride or the wife of the lamb wearing fine linen, it becomes clear contextually that when Jesus returns, he's bringing you and I with him. After the marriage feast of the Lamb, after the marriage has been consummated, you know what? We come back with Jesus, clothed in fine linen, which is the righteousness of God. And this means that we, as the, we, that, that we are these armies described or depicted here in verse 14, who follow Jesus, also riding on white horses. And, and as, he, as, as, as he comes, we ride into battle with him. And all the guys are going, yeah, battle. Maybe some ladies too. But notice that in this battle, we're not doing the fighting. In fact, we don't even have a weapon. And this is because Jesus does all the fighting. And according to verse 15, he's the one who has the only weapon. And it's a sharp sword that comes out from his mouth, which is referring specifically to the words that Jesus speaks. And just like we read about in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, and in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, you can go and look it up, the rhema, which is the spoken word of God, is described over and over again in the word as being like a sword. Ephesians chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 4 are just two places. The point is, get this, there's really been a very dramatic and fantastic scene that's been painted for us in these verses. And as dramatic and as fantastic as this whole scene appears, it's really anticlimactic in a battle sense. You know, Jesus comes, skies roll back, here's this, this these armies, we're all riding in on horses, and there's there's the evil armies surrounding Jerusalem, God's people, and it's like, oh, here we are. And um and then Jesus speaks. And the Antichrist and all of his armies are destroyed. Basically, Jesus says, I am and you're not. Now, well. And you know, Paul prophesies about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. And he says this. He says, for the mystery of the lawless one, the Antichrist, and Satan is dwelling him. He says, the mystery of the lost one is already at work. And only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord, it says, will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And when this happens, it will be this mighty demonstration of the power that Jesus, is, that Jesus possesses 
And, and at that time, it will become very obvious to why Jesus wears this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Just as verse 16 declares. You know, another awesome example of the rhema, this spoken word of God in Scripture is accounted for us in John chapter 18. It was on the night when Jesus was betrayed and arrested. Do you remember that? It was at that time when Judas, the betrayer, led a mob, it says, a mob of people, a great multitude, with the officers and the chief priests in order to come and arrest Jesus, who was in the Garden of Gethsemane, that night praying. But when they came to Jesus, they said to him, he, he, Jesus, he, Jesus addressed them, and he said, Who do you seek? And they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. You know, this is what Jesus spoke, and he said, Ego imai. In other words, I am he. And John tells us that the sound of these words, the spoken word, the rhema, the power of the rhema was released. And it says the entire crowd drew back and fell to the ground. The amazing thing is they got up and stood and stayed and tried to rescue Jesus after that. I ran. You know, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, it says, it tells us, it says, it says, for the word of God is living, it's alive, it's God breathed, it transcends time, it speaks into our lives today, it meets us where, it's at, where we're at. It's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. It is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You know, when I first gave my life to Jesus Christ, I, 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 my wife and I started going to Calvary Chapel, and my wife was all in. I was kind of outside. I thought church people were weird, or I wanted nothing to do with them. But that guy would sit up front. He would teach word by verse by verse, chapter by chapter, line upon line, precept upon precept, going through a book of the Bible. And I would be sitting there, and everything he would be saying, it was like he was. It was like he had a. a it was like someone was coming to him during the week and saying, this is what I was doing with the Lord of my life. As a matter of fact, I would walk out of church, and my wife and I would get in a fight because I'd be like, who did you tell about us? Why were you saying things about me? I mean, I honestly believe, you can ask her, it happened over and over and over again. She said, well, honestly, I didn't, I didn't tell anybody. I know you've been talking to your girlfriends, and they went both faster. I mean, that's what the Word of God has the power to do. It discerns the thoughts and the tents of the heart. And if, if maybe if you've ever felt that way, I pray that you have, as I've been up here teaching the Word of God. No, I don't have any inside, any inside information on you. I don't. But God does. And the power of God has the ability to transcend into our lives, to meet us where we're at, and to discern what's going on, and to convict us. And it says, it says, as, as it goes on, author of Hebrew goes on, verse 13, he says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and naked to the eyes of him whom we must give an account, to whom we must give an account. And in light of this, we see that there's power when God's word is spoken. That's why I insist that you only receive the word of God verse by verse, chapter by chapter, line upon line, precept upon precept, in context. You don't want to hear from me. 
I don't want you to hear from me. I want you to hear from God. I want you to know God's word because it has the power to change lives. It changed my life. My words have no power. But God's word does. As a person has the ability to change a person's life, and it changes us, here's the whole thing, from the inside out. Not only that, the word of God has the power to save anyone. Whosoever will believe. The word of God has the power to save anyone who will believe what it says from the wrath of God that is coming. This is why we teach God's word and not the words of men. And this is why we should know God's word. And this is why we should tell others about God's word. In verse 17 goes on, John says, and he says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come. And gather together for the sap for the supper of the great Lord. It's kind of gruesome. It says that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and the armies all gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured. And with him, the false prophet who worshiped or worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of burning fire with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword that proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Verse 18 wants to come up. You know, when we were in Revelation chapter 14 a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, um, we read that when Jesus returned at that at this time, that it would be a final outpouring of God's wrath. And it would be demonstrated at a time. Please hear this this morning, okay? If you've heard nothing else, or if you've heard some things and you're like, this is freaking me out, I don't know what I want to hear anymore. Hear this. As I already mentioned it, it tells us, it told us in Revelation chapter 14, that when this final outpouring of God's wrath is demonstrated, it will be done at a time, like I said earlier, when the earth is overripe for God's judgment. And I want to remind you of this, because it tells us in the book of Ezekiel that God's wrath is his strange work. Meaning it's a part of his ask, it's a, it's a part of who he is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an attribute of God but it's so rarely seen that it's, it's, it's like, that's a strange thing. That's probably true in regards to patience in my life. When someone sees me exercise patience, they go, wow, that's a strange thing. Because God's full of grace. God's a God of love. God's a merciful and long-suffering God whose will and desire tells us is none, that none would perish that all would repent and be saved. But, God is a just God. And in his wrath, justice and righteousness will be executed. Listen, I want to end with this. Think about everything that we've been talking about, okay? And listen to this, this, this account. Everybody knows that Quakers are pacifists, right? <coughs> Well, one night a burglar entered 
the house of a Quaker, and he proceeded to rob it. The Quaker heard the noise. He brought down his shotgun, went down the stairs, and upon finding the burglar, he aimed his gun, and he gently said, Friend, I mean you no harm, but you're standing where I'm about to shoot. Guys, that's our Lord. That's our God. He gives opportunity after opportunity. He lets people know how it's all going to end so that they can move out of the line of life. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, Paul writes and he says, And you were dead in the trespasses of your sin, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, Paul says. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, and he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches and, and his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For you have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This morning, hear this. If you're outside of Jesus Christ, then you're standing in the place where God is about to shoot. If you are standing outside of Jesus Christ, you are standing in the place where you are about to shoot. Remember, the Bible tells us that there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is death. You may think you're standing in a safe place, but the only safe place is to be found in Jesus Christ. This is why, why the Bible tells us that there's no other way. And this is why Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man comes to the Father except me. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you, God, for showing us how it is all going to end, not only so that we may have peace, but so that we may have answers for those who still have questions. Father, help us to be these lights that bring forth the truth of your word so that people can move out of the line of fire because we know this day is coming. God, give us strength by your spirit. In Jesus' name.